Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Living with Power Hope podcast. I'm Lena Ebajemra, your host, and it is awesome to be back with you. It is fall, a new season. I love new beginnings, and it does feel like right after Labor Day, we are on to a new start. Man, we got a busy, busy fall here at Living with Power, and there's been both good things and challenging things, but in all things, we want to give glory to God. Hey, if you're new to our podcast, thank you for checking in. We hope this will help build your walk with Jesus, get to know Jesus if you don't know him. And if you have been here before and have been waiting for a new series, I don't think you're going to be disappointed. I pray that this series is going to bless you. Hey, before we hit it, I'm going to just remind you of a couple of things. If you want to find out about our ministry, check out livingwithpower.org. Everything you need to know about Living With Power is there. We do work globally with refugees and we do work locally with discipleship and building people like you and me to be stronger in our walk with Jesus and more connected with him. Hey, there's an awesome, awesome thing you need to know. My new book is coming out in four weeks. It is so cool to see that uh, in the horizon, but it's also nerve wracking. Will anyone be interested in it? What I have to say, will anybody buy it? Will anybody be blessed by it? Will anybody like me? And there's just a lot of things that go through an author's mind, but really at the end of the day, we write because we believe that our experiences and my experiences will help you. And so if you've ever struggled with uh, doing things you don't wanna do, with shame over things that you wish you hadn't done, I think this book is gonna be for you. It's called Don't Tell Anyone You're Reading This, uh, a Christian Doctor's Thoughts on Sex, Shame, and Other Troublesome Issues. Hey, this book is not about sex. It is about human nature. It's about following desires and wanting something badly. And when you don't get it, how do you respond to it? And why so many of us live lives of addiction. And so, hey, if you know someone who's struggling with these things, or maybe you are that person who, like me, has had a hard time with certain uh, areas in our lives. And so this book may be for you. We'd love for you to find out more about it. We created a website for it. It's at drlinabook.com or just hit up livingwithpower.org, which is our website, and you'll find links to it. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, do so. And for now, let's get right to business. All right, it's good to have you here. And here's here's the series. It's called the Confidence Series. Remember that the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to remind us that Jesus is better. We're going to just review some of those things so that we have no question at the end of the book of Hebrews. If someone asks you, what is the book of Hebrews about? You're going to say with one word, five letters, it's about Jesus. It is about the fact that Jesus is better. Better than what? Better than everything. Better than anything. And we are making our way through that. We started how Jesus is better than the angels. We talked about how he's better than Moses. Today we're going to look start looking at how he's better than the high priests all of it meant to convince an audience of Jewish people. This book was written to Jewish people who had given their life to Christ but were facing persecution. They were living difficult days where the culture was not a fan of what they believed. And so they were pulled in different directions, wanting to fit into the culture. You know, maybe they were a little sheepish about the things that they said they believed and maybe their families were giving them a hard time. Maybe persecution was encroaching on them. And so in the midst of this, this book was written to remind them like Jesus is worth it. He is preeminent. He is better. Uh, Don't go back to the traditions that didn't serve us well. The Old Testament was meant to point towards Jesus. So this book is written really in in that, with that compelling, 
pursuit of Jesus. And, and it is written to increase the confidence of those who might be floundering, but also to convince those who are wishy-washy in their faith and maybe those who hadn't committed yet to Jesus. And so wherever you find yourself in the spectrum of faith, of believing Jesus, I pray and hope that God will move in this writing, though it was written to the Jewish people, it really is written to us living in a culture that uh, that is not a fond of Christian beliefs, really not fond of Christ and what he taught and the sacrifice that he paid and, and the exclusivity of the message of Jesus. I mean, everyone loves Jesus as long as they love everybody else too, but Jesus's message is exclusive. You cannot come to God except through Jesus. And, and that message is clear throughout scripture and continues to remain clear in the New Testament, even more so by his power of his death and resurrection. And so there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. And so with that in mind, we hit now chapter four and, and how I've sort of addressed this book of Hebrews as we weaved into these themes is, is to look at where our confidence lies. Because Jesus is better, we can be confident. And so the first teaching, we talked about how, how we can be confident because God speaks. He's a God who speaks to us. Second session, we talked about how God is in control because Jesus is in control of everything. We can rest in him. Either way, you might be being tested in that right now because we believe that we've 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 put our our, our you know our heel down. We've put a line in the sand, saying we believe that He is in control. Therefore, now you might be going like I am through some testings to try to prove. Do you really believe it, or are you sort of drifting away? One day you believe it, and one day you don't. So I want you just like I want myself, and God wants us to be all in. He wants us to be unshaken, standing firm because He is in control. So because He speaks, because He's control. Last week we talked about how He is faithful because God. Is faithful to us, we can be so restful and confident and he's invited us into his rest, this rest, the place of peace. No matter what the circumstances around us, we can rest in peace knowing that he is faithful. And so today we're going to jump into this theme. I've called today's teaching because he loves me. Do you ever wonder why? I mean, no matter what you're doing in life, there's always this question of why, you, you know, if you're around toddlers or, or six-year-olds or eight-year-olds, in the case of our family, that age group loves to ask why, why? And, and so even as we get into here, chapter four and five of Hebrews, it's important to stop and say like, why? Why did God make such an effort to tell us about the, the supremacy of Christ? Why is, is this so important? And, and the, the answer lies with the fact that he loves us, that God loves us. And so maybe today you are shaken in a culture that attacks Christianity and the Christian faith. Maybe you're, you're, you're going through some difficult trials and circumstances and you're wondering, God, are you really in control? Nothing will stabilize our hearts and bring us back to a place of peace and understanding the deep and unconditional love of God. That love all the way back to Genesis, God created Adam and Eve and, and God loved them and God saw that Adam had a need and he brought Eve in his life and, and then how when they sinned in Genesis chapter three, God in love found them even though they were ashamed and naked and dressed them. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God reaching out to Abraham and choosing a people. Why? Because of love, because he wanted to show how he treats his special people. And the entire point of the Old Testament and the people of Israel was to point towards a coming redeemer who in love would die for us. In fact, I was right before I was trying to quiet my heart in the last hour coming into this teaching and I was just reflecting on Exodus chapter 3 and when the people of Israel were stuck in Egypt and facing sort of difficulties and, and looking at you know their life as slaves in an Egyptian culture and they were grieving and they were upset and, and God showed up to Moses in chapter 3 and says, said to Mo the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt 
Egypt and have heard their cry. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them. That, that perspective of love that God sees us, understands us, knows our pain, follows throughout the Old Testament and into the New. And of course, if you're at all familiar with the New Testament, one of the most famous verses is John 3.16. If you've been to a football game, you've seen John 3.16. Tim Tebow made it famous, but it's the, the old verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whosoever, that means you, that means me, that means every one of us, that means the people you don't like and the people you like, that means the family members in your life that you're like, why don't they get it right? Well, God, that is whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And, and later in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul would write these words that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. The famous Romans 5, uh, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and of course, 1 John chapter 4. Four, talks about this is God and uh, this is how God demonstrated his love for us in that this is love not that we loved him but that he first loved us is where I'm going but let me just turn over there first John chapter 4 it says in this is love not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins that word propitiation we've talked about in in Hebrews chapter 2 where we talked about how Jesus is better than the angels because he also served as the propitiation the payment the appeasement of God's wrath on our behalf and so all that leading to chapter 4 is sort of the result of the fact that Jesus is better than Moses we get into chapter 4 which is an invitation to rest, to rest, to stabilize our hearts in Christ, to, to, to come to a place of deep belief. Remember the, the indictment against the people of Israel in chapter 3 of Hebrews was that they did not believe. It was their lack of faith that kept them from the promised land. And so chapter 4 is just an invitation for us to soften our hearts, to, to come into the presence of Christ, to rest in Him, because in Him alone, no matter what we're going through, no matter what you're going through right now, there is that rest. And so we come to, uh, we left off last week with uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Let's pick up in verse 11, and I'm going to read through chapter 5 verse 10. I think that's going to be our section for today. And so it says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Remember, when you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it therefore, right? If you grew up in a Baptist church, you probably heard that once or twice. But basically, now we're talking about the therefore of the fact that um, Jesus is our rest, you know. So be, there's this compelling evidence that Jesus, of course, we've, we've made our, 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 the writer of Hebrews has made this argument of who Jesus is and, and how he's the express image of God. And again, you, you, we've made our way the last few weeks and go back and listen to the teachings to bring us now to chapter four where he's saying, let us therefore, because of who Jesus is, because he is better, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And now verse 12, for the word of God, and this is a very important verse, by the way, you should probably have it memorized at this point of your Christian life. And if you don't, you should. It's not as hard as you might think to memorize God's word. It just takes initiative, focus, and a little help by the Holy Spirit of God. Um, and so verse 12 says, for the word of God, the word of God is living, and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked, that's you and me, all of us, are naked and exposed to the eyes 
of him to whom we must give account. We might be able to hide from each other. We might be able to hide from our bosses and our pastors and our small group leaders and our friends even. We might be able to hide from our enemies. We might be able to hide from an online presence, but we cannot hide from God. In fact, even these words are written to, remember the Jewish audience, some of whom believed God, but many of whom were wrestling with their faith. And and it was sort of a reminder that you might be wrestling with your faith and you might think nobody sees it, but God knows. That's not something to make you afraid. On the contrary, that is an invitation to be open to him. To And, and we'll come to that in a second. Let me keep reading, though. So it says, so So now we're told about, uh, about this word of God that, that is powerful, that we're naked and exposed to his eyes. And then verse 14, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Remember, this is a book written to people who were drifting, who, who had, were at risk of persecution. Well, they were being persecuted. It wasn't a risk. It was a reality. And so he's reminding them to persevere, to hold fast. And he says, let us therefore hold fast our, conf- our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. By the way, we've already read those words back in chapter two. So there's an emphasis. There's a couple of themes that are going to come back in in today's teaching. And do you ever wonder why the Holy Spirit gives us the same principles again and again? Maybe because they're important. When I repeat something, usually when I'm talking to a patient or when I'm teaching Sam some things, if it's important, I'll say it more than once. In fact, I'll want to make sure that he hears it and understands it. And so uh, you get that sense as you hear some of these words that are familiar from chapter two of our teaching. And so, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but with uh, one within every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, because of that, because we have this great high priest in verse uh, 16, let us then with confidence, again, an invitation to be confident, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, of all the things we can call the throne of God. It's called the throne of grace, not the throne of provision, not the throne of protection, though we find provision and protection in Christ, but it's the throne of grace, getting what we do not deserve, right? Let us um, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every, now chapter five, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. Now, we're moving now into this, this, um, remember we talked about how Jesus is better than angels, better than Moses. Now we're going into this, uh, how Jesus is better than the high priest. We're going to get into this idea of the high priesthood even later in Hebrews chapter 7, again, in a deeper fashion. But he starts to bring in this theme here. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. He's talking about the earthly high priest, like Aaron was a high priest. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. The, the, so a couple things about the high priest. First of all, he was chosen by God. He was, he was chosen from among men, but he was appointed by God. And he, would, he was very compassionate towards uh, people because he himself was beset of sins. And God had made provision to where the high priest would offer, first of all, the sacrifice for his own sin. And then because his sin was forgiven, he would then go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for the rest of the people. And so, so now we're drawing on this very familiar understanding of what a high priest is in the Old Testament. 
Testament uh, to a Jewish people who understood that. And so he's comparing how Jesus is now better than the earthly high priests who were a big deal in that time. So he says he can deal gently. This is again a reminder of this compassion. He, he had The high priest had compassion. Why? Because he himself was beset with sin. He had compassion on those sins because he understood it. I have compassion on people who struggle certain areas of life because I've been there, I understand it. Um, because of this, he's obligated, this is about the earthly high priest, to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only one called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, verse 5 of chapter 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. Now, remember, we're comparing Jesus to the high priest Aaron. And so now we're again reminded that Christ didn't call himself a high priest. It was God who appointed him. And he's going to now show from the Old Testament that. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, God, who said to him, you are my son. This is a quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, now he's quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4, where he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that word Melchizedek is going to come back again in chapter 7. We're going to dig in deeper in it. I'm going to tell you in a minute a little bit more about it, but, but that's an important uh, concept from the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek was, um, was known, was revered by the people of Israel because Abraham himself in Genesis 14, after he went to war, Lot was captured by the kings uh, that were the enemies uh, of, of Lot. And so Abraham, the uncle of Lot, went to, even though he didn't, he didn't owe Lot anything, Lot had kind of acted in a in an earthly fashion against Abraham as his nephew he went and picked a better land thinking that he would you know beat his I guess I don't want up his his uncle but but Abraham received that and said you know God is my provider and so there was a rift between Abraham and Lot and yet when the enemy came and took Lot in Genesis chapter 13 and 14 Abraham took his 300 soldiers or not really soldiers but shepherds and went and was able to bring Lot back and bring in um, much of the you know this the, the whatever they, the loot the loot I guess you call it when you when you go to war and so after he came back uh, Abraham offered a, a tithe a sacrifice to that in Genesis 14, it's the first reference to Melchizedek, who was thought to be this eternal high priest that was appointed by God that did not have any beginning or end and really was a picture of Jesus. And so we'll dig into this concept of Melchizedek later. But what we're in quoting Psalm 110, the writer of Hebrews is reminding the people of Israel that um, Psalm was referring to this coming Christ who was uh, unlike Aaron, who was a high priest taken from men after the order of men, the, the tribe of Levi. Jesus was appointed by God, and he was after the order of this eternal high priest that had no beginning, no end, Melchizedek. In the days, of verse 7 of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reference, because of his reverence. Uh, by the way, I really like here, in the days of his flesh, you know, so when Jesus Jesus is God made flesh or when he was incarnated as man and lived as man and faced temptations and then went to Gethsemane. So verse seven is talking about Gethsemane. He says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. That verse supplications, and, and I think the Greek is hegeturia, but basically that word supplications uh, sort of inferred this olive branch wrapped in wool that was how they would offer these uh, supplications. And and so the image in, in Gethsemane when Jesus was praying he was offered up, offering up prayers and supplications uh, in the Gethsemane, which was the Mount of Olives, all the olive trees, and and how the wool around the uh, uh, around the stick, you know, the olive stick, basically was a picture of of lamb, and he was the perfect lamb of God. So this picture of 
Hiketeria, which is sort of the olive branch wrapped in wool, is a picture of Jesus offering supplications in Gethsemane. Uh, you know, where he's offering to God this request, this deep, deep request, this, this deep supplication of an olive branch wrapped with his own self as this perfect lamb of God with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And what Jesus prayed for was that for the resurrection. I, I read a commentary that talked about that. Like Jesus wasn't praying that God would keep him from death. He knew he needed to die in order to pay for the price of sin for the world, for whoever believes in him, right? But but the prayer was that was that he would raise him from the dead and that he would, for the resurrection, that God wouldn't leave him there. Of course, God wouldn't, but, but again, that was the supplication. Jesus wasn't afraid to die. He knew he had come to die, and his prayer and his agony, and finally his surrender, saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. And he rested in knowing that God is a father who does um, save his own. And so verse 8, he says, although he was a son, he learned, again, this is a principle we saw in chapter 2, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So again, Jesus better than the high priest. That concept is going to dig more into it in the weeks, in the next couple of weeks. So, so we're going to sort of, you know, we've kind of whet our appetite on that. We're going to come back to it later. But I want to focus today on this idea of, of God's love for us. All of this, everything I just read, you say, why? Why did God bother? Think about it. God didn't need to do this. Well, God bothered because of love. I read you those verses at the beginning of the teaching because I think it's critical to understand the why. God is love. God doesn't just love, he, he is love, his character is love. And I think it's very hard sometimes for us to understand the depth of God's love because you and I are very transactional. We think if someone gives me a nice present, then he must love or she must love me. If they call me back, they must love me. You know, we, we, we sort of associate if I'm good, they will love me. We grow up being taught, if you're, you're a good boy, here's a treat. Good girl, you did, you know, applaud good results. And so we become very focused on our performance and this idea that if we behave well, then we are loved. And that is not the character of God obedience, good behavior flows out of love, but it is not what earns us love. And so that's why the message of the gospel is so rich because over and again, we're told in the New Testament how it wasn't because of what we did, but because of what God has done for us. By the way, it's the same message in the Old Testament. It was always a pointing towards Christ, Christ the Redeemer, Christ the perfect Lamb of God. But now we see it so clearly in the New Testament, word after word, reminder of this new covenant where God's love towards us, unconditional, but the Old Testament covenants were unconditional. Why? They were based not on what we do, how we can earn salvation, but based simply on God and his mercy. And of course, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice that was able Able to atone for that deep sin of the world that came in in Genesis 3 that all of us carry in our DNA but are replaced with righteousness in Christ so so why why can we be confident well because he loves us you know why why anything about our Christian life why can we have peace it's not just because oh I can put myself in the rest of God yes yes believing Christ puts you in a place of rest but but why can we believe him? Well, because he loves us. So love is sort of this the power, the fuel of the divine, so to speak. And, and so I want to just give you sort of some summary points based on the, the few verses that I read and kind of taking back your attention here as we draw some, some application points. Uh, I can be confident because he loves me. Number one, he loves me so much, even though he sees me completely. Uh, write that down if you haven't. You can be confident because... 
I like to say it this way, because God knows you so well and he still loves you so much. You know, sometimes we're afraid to let ourselves be known to others because we think if they know us so well, they, they'll stop loving us. They'll see our flaws. If they find out what I did, if they find out the depth of my depravity, they'll hate me. Well, they might. Luckily for us, they're not the ones we need to love us. We need, we, where we find freedom is the perfect love of God. And what, what, we're, what we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, is that the Word of God sees us so clearly. It, 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 it has this function. It's like it compares it to this two-edged sword. It's like a surgeon's blade. It can get right into the cancer of our soul and tells us who we are and it discerns our... Sometimes I don't even know what I'm thinking. And you start reading God's word and, and, and God opens your eyes to truth that you're like, I didn't even see. You go to church, you hear a sermon, you go, I don't know how the pastor knew. I had someone say that to me last Saturday. I spoke at a woman's retreat and she came up to me. How? Everything you said seems to apply to me. Well, I don't, I don't know her, but God's word is what she was relating to. It wasn't me. It was God's word that connected so deeply in her heart. But what I love about it is verse 13 where he says, No creature is hidden from him, but we're naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, now I grew up with that verse being like sort of my conscience, right? Like, oh, we're going to give account. Therefore, we live in fear of God. Fear of God's good. The fear of God's the beginning of wisdom. But, but many times that fear of God would alienate us from God because we'd be like, oh, he knows who I am. I can't come in his presence. I'm going to hide. I'm going to hide. On, but, but really, as I've grown older in the faith, I see this as on the opposite, an invitation to draw closer. Because what God is saying is he already sees you. He already knows you. He sees your motives. He knows you know, even think about the people of Israel in that day who were who the letter was written to. They were struggling with their faith and God already knew. And that wasn't a reason for him to push them back. On the contrary, his hands were open, drawing them in, pursuing them. We think we're pursuing God, but indeed we're not. He is the one who is pursuing us over and over and over again in so many different ways. He loves me so much, even though he sees me completely. Your behavior, your hidden sins are not a reason that God shies away from you. He says, I don't want you. On the contrary, it's an invitation to draw closer to him. And the more time you spend in his word, the more you're able to see yourself for who you are. And, and hopefully that will draw you to repentance. We're told in Romans that it's the goodness of God that draws us to repentance. It's not a sense of punishment. I think we have this idea of God like a cop waiting to punish us or like a judge waiting. You know, well, he, he is the perfect judge, but really God is like our father who, uh, I love the verse in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, that says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. There's a love relationship that is not broken however we behave. And, and that is not an invitation to sin, knowing that we're forgiven. On the contrary, Romans 6 Paul says, God forbid, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Remember in Romans 5, he had said, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. But it is an encouragement for those of you and those of us who might find ourselves trapped in the same trials and temptations and always acting in a way that we say, I'm going to do this again. And, and here is the word of God that rather, yes, it, yes it, it deciphers us. Yes, it helps us to see right from wrong. Yes, it trains us. Yes, it instructs us and convicts us. But really, it is an invitation, a reminder that we are deeply loved. He sees me enough to transform me completely. His word is the place where I find transformation. His word, his spirit is the one who shapes me into his likeness. I was reflecting a little bit practically on this. Um, if that's the case, if God's word changes us so, so completely, why are so few changed by his word? And I'm not talking about the word, I'm talking about Christians. Why are so many Christians 
Why do we remain unchanged by his word if his word is this powerful? Have you thought about it? I just jotted down five reasons that I thought, here's some examples of what I think. You can come up with more maybe if you put your mind to it, but, but number one, we're too busy. Why doesn't God, uh, why doesn't God, God's word change me? That's the heading. Why doesn't God's word change me? Why am I not transformed by God's word? Number one, you're too busy. Uh, I, I think that's a, that's a, that's a pandemic basically, an epidemic, whatever you want to call it. That is a problem in the Christian world. We're too busy, even with good things. We're too busy with, with worldly things. Uh, here's another one. We're too rushed. We, we don't say we're too busy. You know, we're, we're doing our quiet time every day, but it's, it's rushed. It's rushed. We don't have time to quiet our hearts before God. And so the type of meditation, the type of work that the Spirit needs to do demands silence and solitude and contemplation and meditation on the Word of God. It is not a work that is rushed. So too busy, too rushed, um, too hardened by sin. You, you keep saying yes to sin, no to God's spirit. After a while, your heart becomes hardened. We need it soft. And, 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 and so we, of course, in the verses leading up to chapter four, we're told about what makes the hard heart. It's the deceitfulness of sin. But also, here's another one. We're too disbelieving or too unbelieving. We read it, but there's no faith there. We read it as a homework to get us what we want. We read it as a duty to get God off our backs. We read it as a means to gain as opposed to uh, as a step of faith into the very presence of God, which we're going to talk about in a second. Or, or fifthly, and I think this is probably one that, uh, that most of us who are here tonight on a Thursday night still checking into Bible study, we might say, well, I'm not that busy. I'm here. I'm not that rushed. I want to be changed. I don't want to be hardened by sin. I'm not disbelieving. But, but here, here's what I think some of us struggle with. We're too impatient. We are being changed but we don't see it yet. This is like the child that's growing a little taller every year, but he doesn't see it. And so every year they, you know, you mark up the wall, you know, back the old Waltons used to do that. I don't know what they do in the modern day. You probably have some app for it, but, but we used to like mark it on the wall. And, and then a relative would come from out of town and be like, oh my word, you've grown so tall. I think the word of God is doing that in us. We don't see the transformation, but it's happening. We might be too impatient where we're just not letting the spirit of God bear fruit in its time. And so be encouraged if that's you and you're like, man, I want to be changed by the word of God. Give him your attention. Give him your time. That doesn't translate into so many minutes a day. Listen, sometimes you give God three minutes and it's worth three hours. It just depends on where you're at. It's, it's quality, not quantity. And so, um, and so, so that brings us, so that's kind of the first application. You can be confident because he loves you. He loves you so much even though he sees you completely and that that seeing that discerning is through his word so let the word of God has his way through you by the way uh, I probably won't have time for to go through a list but I found this amazing list of how God's word changes us uh, on enduringword.com if you this is a commentary uh, that is very helpful I think just kind of simple quick to read online uh, enduringword.com if you put in Hebrews chapter 4 enduringword.com it'll pop up scroll down a little and it gives you a list of like 30 ways that God's word changes us I encourage you to spend time looking at it it's so encouraging uh, and it gives you some references that are so helpful. Here's a second idea, though, and I know we've already covered a lot of ground, but a second idea about why we can be confident in God's love. He loves me so much that he walked the way before me. So you can be confident of God's love because he walked the way before you. He loves me so much, he walked the way before me. So now we jump into um, sort of this reminder again of chapter, verse 14 of chapter 4 that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and then... For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, in every respect, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
why did why was he willing to do that think about god in heaven um the verses of philippians uh, 2 i think are really inferred here in philippians chapter 2 a great memory uh, scripture memory passage by the way it says uh have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross why because of love and so you wonder why would christ why would god allow his son to be tempted as we are well we we get the big picture because he, he had to be made perfect you know, he had to there, there had to be a perfect man who would be able to pay for the price of sin but why the why is love that's how much he loves you he loves you so much um even though he sees you completely but he also loves you so much that he walked the way before you he did it so that you and i could have this sympathetic high priest this com compassionate high priest we get into verse five, chapter 5 verse 1 and 2 and we're reminded of the compassion of a high priest who could sympathize with the people because he understood what they'd gone through. I know that's hard sometimes to, to, to comprehend. I, you know, there's always that cynic or that skeptic that's like, but, but, but Jesus doesn't know exactly what I'm going through. I mean, he was only single for 33 years. I've been single for 50. You know, that's the word of God tells us he felt every temptation and was without sin. There's not a feeling, there's not a, an, a, a problem that you and I face that he hasn't faced, but but did not sin in it. But, but that sense of what we feel, he understands. This is the greatest gift that anyone could give you. There's such a tenderness in telling someone, man, I've been there before. I have walked the path that you're walking. And, and, and often you don't even have to say it. Your very presence reflects that you have walked down that path. And it brings uh, a certain sense of unity and healing. Uh, because he walked before me, he can sympathize with my struggles. Because he walked before me, he knows the way that I take. Because he walked before me, he can offer me the help that I need. And because he walked before me, he guarantees that victory is possible. Again, these are familiar concepts. They should be from chapter two when we uh, spent session two together. But again, a reminder that we have this high priest uh, who uh, understands us, sympathizes us, loves us, has compassion on us, and still died for us. And then thirdly, you can be confident. Here's another one. Um, he loves me so much, he invites me to draw nearer. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling enough that he sees me and still loves me. It's mind-boggling enough that he was willing to walk the path that I'm on in order to be sympathetic to me. But now there's this invitation in chapter 4, verse 16, which is amazing, which is going to be repeated later in Hebrews, where he says, let us then with confidence, he says, draw near. Remember in Peter, he says, draw near to God and he will draw to you. There's an invitation for us to draw near to the throne of grace. Imagine you and I wake up tomorrow and we get a call or a letter in the mail inviting us to go to Buckingham Palace to have supper with the king, Prince William, let's say. I prefer him anyway. But, but, but imagine, you would drop everything. I mean, you might even tweet about it or something, but you would be on that plane so fast. They probably send a private plane for you, but, but, but we would be so honored when we're invited to draw near to the King of Kings and, 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 and in such a way 
this very throne where he sits, where Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, is called a throne of grace. Again, don't lose sight of that. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. Grace is the invitation that allows us, even though we are sinful because of Christ, washing us from our sin to draw near and to be able to get his grace. We still, if you're like me, I still have a tendency to want to clean up my act before I come to God. But what God is saying, come just as you are. I mean, that became very popular in the 80s and 90s, you know, come just as you are, but, but it's the truth. You can't clean up your act. Jesus has to clean up your act. And because of the price that was paid for you, you can come boldly. This doesn't mean that God approves of our sin. That doesn't mean that, that God doesn't want us to repent of our sin, but in Christ, all of our sin, past, present, future is forgiven. We can enter into his throne. In fact, not just that we can, but we're invited to enter again and again and again. He loves me so much that he invites me to draw near. This is language of intimacy and vulnerability. Concepts that in 2020 are so, so many men and women write about how they are craving this intimacy. Well, we find it in Christ Jesus, whether you're single, whether you're married, uh, we are invited to receive this mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. Listen, we don't go to God just in our time. In fact, it, the invitation isn't in our time of well. Now we know that God wants us to, to sing praise to him when we're well, but, but the invitation is when we're needy. You might be needy today because of, of, of circumstantial needs, you provisional needs, health needs, but you might also be needy in your spiritual life. Maybe you're feeling dry. Don't feel the sense of God in your life. Maybe you, you feel sinful. You keep falling again and again in the same sin. Listen, that's time of need. If I understand that correctly, that's what the invitation is, that God's inviting you in your very need, in your time of need to come to draw near to him. And, and, and we're so much, you know, again, I, I, I see the opposite that we do, which is like, like toddlers, you know, they, they get in trouble and they hide and they don't look you in the eye and they think you don't know and you might know. And, and that's, that's happened. I wrote about that in chapter three of Fractured Faith. And if Sam was here, he would testify of it. But, but he didn't tell us, but we knew that he had done something. And this, we all have these stories we, where we've done something. And, 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 yet, and yet there's a desire for relationship. And, and, and there's not a, oh my goodness, I can't believe you did that step out of, oh, to contrary, the love of God brings us closer and wants to, to gives us, give us the opportunity to draw near and we can do it because of Jesus who has paid the price for our sin. And so this is, I am confident because of this love that invites me to draw near, that sympathizes with my weaknesses, that has paid the price for my sin, that sees me completely and loves me completely. And lastly, he loves me so much that he shared in my suffering. Again, a repeat theme, but worth repeating again, Jesus Christ shares in our suffering. There's a beauty and a richness in that. Um, suffering is God's gift for my perfection. And we see it, how if Jesus had to suffer, he was a son and he had to learn, learn obedience through suffering. And if he had to suffer, why? To be made perfect. Now, uh, uh, that means uh, th that God uses suffering as a means to teach me obedience and surrender and to, and to accomplish his purposes in my life. And, and uh, uh, whatever you're going through, he understands because he walked that road before. Um, Oh, one, one, one thought. I, I, I was I jotted again. Some I like lists. You know, I make a lot of lists. And one of the other things that I, I wanted to think through: Why don't we come near to God? Think about why don't we come near to God? And 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 just jotted down some thoughts, and they may help you tonight. Maybe you're listening to this teaching, and you're like, yeah, you know, I get it, but I still struggle with coming near to God. And 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 so I, I'd like to think through some of the you know the reasons that we might stay hovering in the back of the room and act like outsiders when we've been invited to be insiders. And 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 I think first of all, we're we're afraid He will reject us. 
And um, I hope that by now you see, because of his love, that you don't have to be afraid of rejection. God doesn't reject us. We are the ones who reject his love, but he has never rejected us. In fact, he made a way for us to come into his presence through Christ Jesus. So if you're afraid of his rejection, don't be. All throughout scripture is an invitation over and over again. And he tells us every day is a new day, new mercies. Come, draw near to God. And Isaiah, the language of coming to God is so repetitive. And in Revelation, at the end, we hear that same language. So if you're afraid of being rejected, listen, um, because of Christ, you will never be rejected. And so don't be afraid. Here's another one. We're ashamed of what we've done. That's why we don't, don't draw near to God. And, and, um, and shame is the reason Adam and Eve hid in the Garden of Eden. It's one of the first sins besides the sin of disbelief and of pride. I mean, shame was right there in that garden. And... and um, by the way, I think Cain and Abel, when Cain killed Abel, I think he was ashamed of it too. And he also denied that fact. And, and so this is a common uh, mechanism for us to deal with our guilt. And so if you're ashamed, listen, there's a difference between shame and guilt. Like shame keeps you in hiding. Guilt brings it to a point of confession. And so, um, and so uh, it, th that's where the wording of throne of grace is so good and how he gives us mercy if you're ashamed. Remember, Jesus pursued Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and then he killed an animal and dressed them with the leather skins of the animal, a symbol of what was to come in Christ, which is, again, how God made atonement for our sins so that we would not walk in shame, but in purity and in joy, uh, not based, again, on our efforts, but because of what Christ did for us. Here's another reason we don't draw near. We're unwilling to humble our hearts. We're just too proud. You just think, man, I, I'm fine. I don't, I don't need to draw near, or I am near. You know, we're not, but we say it because we're too humble to admit that there is a gap, there's a schism that needs to be, to be, to be healed by Christ and His love. Uh, here's another one, and I think that has been uh, the point of, of of Hebrews chapter three and four, which is uh, we are unbelieving that the price has already been paid. It's, it's our unbelief that keeps us from drawing near. Somehow we, we may say we believe God here, but in our hearts we don't really believe because if we really believe that God Almighty was sitting in the heavens making intercession for us, I think we would run towards him. So, so ask yourself, do I really believe those things that I say I believe? Do I really believe the word of God? Do I really believe that he loves me to this degree? And, uh, and ask God to give you deeper faith if you don't. Um, and, and, and here's another one. So this is afraid uh, he will reject us, ashamed of what we've done, unwilling to humble our hearts, unbelieving that the price has already been paid, unfocused by lesser things. This is an issue of priorities. We don't draw near because we're unfocused. We've got so many other things that are eating up our mind. And I think that is a call for priorities, godly priorities. And lastly, we're unwilling to let go of the control. We're unwilling to let go. We're just so, our hands are on the steering wheel. We don't, we just, we, 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 that's more than pride. That's control, like control is pride. So this is tied to pride. Uh, and, and what I've found is that God will pry our hands off the steering wheel in order to show us that only his, that we think we have a plan, but really our plans are failing. And so when your plans fail, rather than look at it as the worst thing that could happen, like today, I had a day where everything that I planned humanly with regarding the car, the con, the paint job, or this or that fell through. Rather than panic, so humanly, the heart that is faithless panics and starts to plot, but, but the godly focused heart that understands that God knows that I need to let go, says, okay, God, I've tried my way and it's failed, so now you take over. And so I'm excited. I was thinking about that before the Bible study. I was thinking, I'm really excited about how practical God's word is because now I can sit back and let God bring the next 
open door. He's closed these doors. Now he's going to open these doors. I don't know how. I don't know where. And maybe in your life, again, it may not be a car situation. It may be a job situation or it may be a relationship situation. Whatever the situation is, I urge you uh, to let go of control and let God come in and give you the plan that is better. And he will do it and he can do it because he's been there before. He understands what you're going through and he still loves you completely. And so um, are you confident in his love? Can you rest in his love? The peace that God gives to us is because of how deeply he loves us. And so the more we meditate on his love, which is best seen on the cross, uh, the more rest and peace you and I will experience in this life, which is our legacy. Well, I hope you enjoyed this teaching. I love the book of Hebrews. I'm not joking. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And I think you're going to love this series. I more than anything hope that it will build up your faith in God who never disappoints. He's always faithful, always true. Hey, don't forget to check out livingwithbower.org. Subscribe to the podcast if you're not on it already. Leave us a review if you haven't done it in a while. But more than anything, check out the new book. Don't tell anyone you're reading this. It is going to bless you and encourage you, but it's also going to help you find out a lot more about me. So uh, maybe more than you wanted to know. So go ahead and hit the drlinabook.com page. Uh, start reading it now. You can get the first couple of chapters free and come back next week. And now go be with God who is already with you. Love you guys. See you next week.